The fact that these white people have gaslit America by literally exploiting and trafficking children and then making themselves motivational speakers over it, which again, visit Leanne Tui's Facebook page. It is absurd. It's like a, a shopping exchange for foster children. All the posts are just <laughs> pictures of mostly black. It's it really is. It's like it's like one of those like buy or sell Facebook groups, but it's just foster kids. Welcome back, everyone, to another very special episode of Stuck with David Young. So I don't know if a movie has been able to capture the concept of two Americas the way that the blind side did. Because, you know, in mainstream white America, it was critically acclaimed. It made $300 million. And it won Sandra Bullock an Oscar. But in black America, well, at least in the black American circles that I'm in, the collective takeaway from that movie was, this is some bullshit. And to apparently confirm that our collective cynicism was justified, retired NFL player Michael Oer, whose story was a center of the movie, recently sued the Tui family, alleging that they've been defrauding him in the public for over a decade. And to talk about this, and also, I guess, to get into the popularity of like the white savior narrative, I'm joined by a friend of the pod, Boston University professor, Syed Grundy. And we have so much to talk about that we spent the entire episode on this topic. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Dr. Sadik Grundy, a.k.a. Sharkus Garvey, friend of the pod, sociology professor at Boston University. Sai, what's good? What's good, darling? I just want to say thanks for having me back on because now everyone who doesn't know me know that my voice sounds like an incarcerated Muppet. <laughs> well, you know, we're both still recovering. Yes. We were both in Birmingham kicking it together at NABJ. We had a great time. Yes. But, you know, we both brought back a virus. We got a red state parting gift. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think that's on us because going to a Waffle House twice in a row for two nights, like mm -hmm. basically you have a 100% rate of contracting something. Yes. So it was either hepatitis A through Z or COVID. Yeah. But the waffles were banging, though. I am not disappointed in our meal. Yeah. And that was my first time in a Waffle House in 20 years. So it lived up to my expectations. And my expectations weren't high. Yes. So there's a movie, The Blind Side, which is about a offensive lineman, Michael Ower, who was eventually drafted by the Baltimore Ravens, you know, had a decent career. Mm -hmm. And it goes into, I guess, what happened with him when he was a teenager, mm -hmm. where he was quote unquote adopted by a white family who were boosters for the University of Mississippi, mm -hmm. right? And he ended up um, living with this family and going to Ole Miss. He ended up getting drafted into the NFL. And this was a heartwarming story for some people. Yes. And Sandra Bullock famously won an Oscar. Yes. For her depiction of, um, and what's the woman's name, who she played? Leanne and Sean Tui are the couple we are talking about. Yes. Leanne and Sean Tui. Who are white Memphians themselves. Yes. Memphian. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> it almost sounds like amphibious. It does. Memphian. <laughs> Which is how they came, I believe, into contact with Michael Orr, who was also 
from Memphis. Yes. And so the story was broken by a writer for ESPN by the name of Michael Fletcher, who Michael Orr is alleging that the family made millions of dollars off of him and never actually adopted him. Yes. It made it so that he thought that he was adopted. Yes. But he actually was tricked into signing a conservatorship. And so now it's a story. Yeah. And so when the story broke, I'm going to read the text that you sent me. Okay. You sent me a text. Podcast needed about this ASAP. Please <laughs> have me on. I have spent 12 plus years ranting about this fucking racist ass movie. Absolutely. And I am not alone in this. Um, it's one of those movies where white people love it and black people despise this film. To me, it was the most racist film Hollywood has put out in the last 15-ish years. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a high standard. That is a high standard. And particularly because it was so lauded by Hollywood, every part of it, even though I went back and I watched clips um, this week just to make sure I wasn't tripping. <laughs> and even if you look at the film cinematically, like if you were like a film scholar looking at the film and you think about the decisions made like directorially, all the white people are always depicted as having abundance. Like there's this scene where Michael Orr is over their house and, and he makes a plate and he's stealing food from their table, which makes no sense. And they are depicted as like always like attractive and luxurious. And remember, um, Tim McGraw plays the husband in this film, right? So again, these are choices made because the actual couple is not attractive. So the choice made to put Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw in this thing to make them sort of this very appealing white family. And even the scene where they have Thanksgiving at the house. Now, there's all of five people at this home, including the kid who's depicting Michael Orr. When we cut to the scene of their Thanksgiving table, it is just overflowing with food. And these are choices made to depict white people as generous, abundant, overflowing, right? And choices were made to depict him. Now, if you've ever heard Michael Orr talk as a human being, very articulate, he's gregarious, very much someone you would you know, be friends with, right? In that film, he's depicted as damn near deaf, dumb, and mute. His teeth are jacked up in a way that is not clear that his teeth were. He almost never talks in the film, almost never talks, even when he's being spoken to. Mm -hmm. And so for me, part of the rant is, and part of my outrage about this movie, and I'm sorry, Dad, I'm about to use a racial epithet on this podcast, but it's a big dumb nigger porn, right? That this is white people's ultimate fantasy about black athletes, that they are big dumb niggers. And this family is depicted as having their own pet big dumb nigger. And so this boy never has agency in this movie. He never has his own intellect. And it, was, it wasn't just a white savior film in terms of it was offensive. It's proof that white savior films are lies. It depicts this white family as teaching this boy how to play football. Now, I don't know about you, Damon, but what big motherfucker from Memphis don't know how to play fucking football? <laughs> they, he had been playing football since he was in second, third grade. They didn't teach him how to play football. Yes, there's two parts of the movie that really, like even when I first watched it, Right. And when I first watched it 10 years ago, there were two parts that really stood out to me. It was like, you know, what the fuck is happening here? First part, and this is something that annoys me whenever I see this depicted on screen, is there's a scene where Michael Owers in, in the hood forever. Yeah. And like there's some dope boys, some hustlers, whatever, and they're giving them a hard time. 
and Sandra Bullock has to like march through the hood and basically like threaten all the hood niggas and pull him out of the hood. <gasps> yeah, because they were listening to that white lady. But the thing is, in, in movies like this, there's always like this depiction of like hood niggas of being like these crab ass motherfuckers who do not want anyone with any sort of talent, anyone with any sort of intellect. Absolutely. To leave, to not live that life when the reality is that if it's you're in the, the hood, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> Where if you are someone that has some talent, if you're someone who is a gifted athlete, if you're someone who is not about that life, the hood niggas are going <laughs> to kick you the fuck out. Like, yo, get a, get away from ask us. Ask Jalen Rose, right? Ask any athlete from a hood. They will get you anything you ever need. Because yes. at that point, it's like they are the boosters. They're the hood boosters. Yeah, and so this idea that, like, not only was she protecting him from poverty. Yeah. She was protecting him from like just the hood nigger. You know what I mean? The thug. Yeah. When again, when if you are from the hood, you know that yeah, people will pick on you. People will make fun of you, whatever. But when it comes down to it, if you have talent, if you are gifted, if you are an athlete, if you are big, they're going to be like, yo, let that little nigga do his thing. Don't get him involved with this life. Absolutely. Get the fuck away from us. You don't want to be involved with this shit. You are a protected class as far as the hood is concerned. Yeah. So there's that scene, which again, I mm -hmm. immediately go, this is some bullshit. And then there's another scene, which is finding its way around Twitter right now, where there's a black woman who works for the NCAA. Yes. Who is basically like the, the cynic is like, yo, so you're telling me this family just plucked you out the hood. Yeah. These fucking Trump loving ass white people just, yeah. And is giving you a bid and is making you go to Mississippi and, you know, they're not influencing you in any way. And she's depicted, and you're talking about choices, right? As being like the antagonist, as being like the evil. Yes. Yeah. The naysayer. Right. Exactly. The naysayer when she's the one who is actually looking out for this kid's best interests. Absolutely. You know how fucked up you have to be for the NCAA to be the good guys? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, for real. You know, it reminds me, um, you know, a film I thought was equally egregious and yet it was done by a black filmmaker was Precious because both of these films depict black families as completely defective and incapable of raising their own children with love and care and attention. And in the blind side, you know, one of the reasons that it was so personal for me is my godfather was former president of the National Association of Black Social Workers. And in the 80s and 90s, if you remember those Oprah episodes, they were really big on scrutinizing transracial adoption. They were not a, for banning it necessarily. I mean, I have people in my village who I think are very responsible transracial adopters. But they were very critical of it. Because remember, in the 80s, we have, you know, kids on TV who are, you know, this idea that black kids are better when they're adopted by white people, that white people's families equal love and black people's families equal, particularly it was an anti, it was a misogynoir, right? It was particularly about black mothers being defective, which Precious goes out of its way to make black mothers look defective. But in the blind side, we see that pairing with not only are black people defective, and apparently this boy doesn't even have any extended relatives, which again, not a Memphis possibility. <laughs> He doesn't have a grandmother. He doesn't got a granddaddy. He ain't got no uncles, no aunties, nothing. And that somehow this family is better for this kid only because they're white and wealthy than his own family, right? And so we get a Ronald Reagan wet dream, which is that Black people 
are defective and messed up in their family unit, which we know not to be the case. First of all, we were so defective. Why did we raise all their kids? It was our grandmothers raising their kids, right? I bet you, Leanne, too, we had a black domestic growing up. I bet you, right? So the very people who raised their children were called defective when we tried to raise our own children, right? And so this film, there's multiple layers. We need to deal with the Tui family, which I have found out far more about in this past 48 you know, hours than I ever did. And then there's the film and its choices. So we can dissect both of those if you like. And there's the film, right? Which again, you know, Sandra Bullock won Academy Award for the film. It made hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, over 300 million, I believe, yeah. It was extremely popular in this sort of narrative. It's a popular trope in American cinema where you have the noble white family, you have uneducated, uh, uncouth mm -hmm. Negro or whatever who finds its way, you know, they, they meet somehow. Sometimes it's depicted where the white person goes into the hood and teaches them, you know what I mean? Teaches them math with like hip hop lyrics and, and basketball stats. And then sometimes it's like, okay, you have this white person who pulls the black person out of the hood. So you have the movie, but then you have the actual like reality, what's happening right now. Yes. And I think that we should actually just read some of what Michael Orr is alleging in this suit. So I'm gonna just read verbatim some of the stuff that I have in front of me. The 14 page petition filed in Tennessee alleges that the two East never adopted Orr when he was in high school legally and instead had him sign a document for a conservatorship three days after his 18th birthday, thus giving him legal authority to make business deals in his name. The petition alleges that the Tui struck a deal that paid them and their birth children millions of dollars from the Oscar-winning film that earned more than $300 million at the box office. And Michael got nothing, according to the lawsuit. Michael Orr discovered this lie to his chagrin and embarrassment in February of 2023, when he learned that the conservatorship to which he consented on the basis that doing so would make him a member of the Tuis family, in fact, provided him no familial relationship with the Tuis. And so Orr's petition asked the court to end the conservatorship, barring the use of his name and likeness, full accounting of the money the Tuis earn using Orr's name, and pay back what they owe Orr, as well as punitive damages. So, you know, for all of the Tuis claims that, you know, this seems to the very deflective thing they're doing, which is why it's easy for me to believe that they're manipulative. So Michael Orr's claim is about conservatorship. And they're saying, we never, you know, made a lot of money off the movie. He's not even talking about the legal cases about conservatorship, which many an attorney will tell you, there is no reason for a completely mentally capable, physically capable, employed adult to be in a conservatorship, right? We learned this from Britney Spears. In fact, I think... Uh, the phrase that lawyers use is, I've never seen a person with a job be in a conservatorship because the whole point of a conservatorship is you wouldn't even be able to work. You would be that incapacitated. So they keep deflecting this thing, right? The fact for me is that the conservatorship exists. That's why I feel so strongly about Michael Orr's claims. Why is there a conservatorship at all if this young man wasn't being manipulated? And they didn't just tell him that this was a way for him to be in their family. They did say, you know, this is the only way to adopt an adult, which again is manipulative because adults can't be adopted. But it's also how they told him it was the only way he would go to Ole Miss, which is bizarre since I believe Ole Miss was already recruiting him. So they fully manipulated this man. Now, let me read the counter 
from the Tuohys, attorney Martin Singer issued a statement on the Tuohys' behalf that called Ower's claims outlandish and said that the idea that the family ever sought the profit off of Mr. Ower is not only offensive, it is transparently ridiculous. In reality, the Tuohys opened a home to Mr. Ower, offered him structure, support, and most of all, unconditional love. Singer's statement said they have consistently treated him like a son and one of their three children. His response was to threaten them, including saying that he would plant a negative story about them in the press unless they paid him $15 million. For clarity's sake, that quote is from an article also written by Michael Fletcher of uh, ESPN. So The love was literally conditional. If you're saying, sign this or you won't be in our family, then the love is literally conditional. <laughs> so apparently, I've also read some stuff today that basically saying in Malcolm Owers in the book that he wrote, I guess a few years ago, I forgot the title, but in his first book, he does state that he was never adopted by them. Yes. And remember, the film goes out of its way. The film has an actual scene. There's all these, you know, white people on the internet talking about, well, you know, the film never implied he was adopted. No, the film literally has a scene in which Sandra Bullock says, do you want to be a part of this family? So again, Decisions were made somewhere across the producers of that film, Michael Lewis, who wrote the book about it, and the Tui family, who were influencing Michael Lewis and the book about it, to put that scene in the film. So they grossly misrepresented themselves. The other thing we need to understand about the Tui family, which I've never wanted to put hands on a white woman so passionately <laughs> since Emmett Till's murderer lied about, you know, Emmett Till ever having ever whistled at her, etc., which is also really sick because you are sexualizing a child. But we'll get back to that. The Tui family are fast food franchisees. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars off of fast food franchises in Memphis. And we need not guess where those fast food franchises, what neighborhoods they're in, right? So they're making hundreds of millions of dollars off of making sure black people don't have proper food. They also were in several bankruptcies with those businesses, right? So the Tui somehow can't manage their own money. And even Sean Tui is reported as saying, oh, he's had like one, if not two, near bankruptcies with his businesses. It is clear to me that they were subsidizing their income with this bullshit motivational speaking about Michael Orr. So Leanne Tui's entire business is this evangelist, white woman, Republican thing about how she saves all the black children. That's how they were making their money. They couldn't apparently keep their money off of these restaurants. So their entire second line of income, their cash flow, because remember, when you are leveraged that much for restaurants, you're not really cash rich, right? You're over leveraged. When you need a cash injection, speaking deals is the way to get it. This is how they were funding their lifestyle. Yeah. And so it's tricky because, again, if Michael Ower has said in his first book that he knows that he was not adopted legally, right? Then I guess what we're really getting at is just this, this larger context of misrepresentation where the Tui family, despite that being a truth, has allowed this misrepresentation of their relationship with Michael Ower yes. to continue to allow them to make money off of him 
off of his name. If not deliberately misrepresented, yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious how this plays out because I think there's larger implications here too, not just with this the movie, not just with adoption, but also with football. Yes. With the dynamics in here with like football, college football in the South and how yes. this is not an irregular sort of thing. No, it's not. When we're talking about like the multi-million dollar football programs that are mainly in the South. Yeah. Right. And the type of boosters that they have, the type of support that they have. Now, you know, things are a little bit different now where athletes are able to make money off of their likeness mm -hmm. and that that changed the game. But before that, you had all of these boosters who would find ways around, yes, you know, the NCAA. Yes. And ways to funnel athletes to certain schools. And, you know, we can't pay you, but maybe we could give your mom a job for 100K a year working at a car wash. You know what I mean? Boosters have always been this gigantic loophole around NCAA regulations. And that's if the NCAA is really enforcing their regulations, right? So... Boosters remind me of what super PACs do for political parties, right? Super PACs basically aggrandize the amount of money you can put behind candidates, which that would otherwise be capped, right, by individual contributions. Boosters sort of do the same thing for a football program. Now, being a Southerner as I am, you know, being from Kentucky, not that Kentucky has a storied football program, but I am part of the SEC in terms of my Southern identity. My first reaction to watching this film when it came out all those years ago was, why isn't the NCAA investigating this? This is a violation. You cannot tell me that is not a conflict of interest. Remember, Leanne Toohey is an old Miss grad. That's where she met Sean Toohey, who he played basketball there. It's unclear if he ever graduated. It's such a white man thing that you can go on to be a multimillionaire without finishing college. But he plays basketball at Ole Miss. She's a cheerleader. Can't make this shit up. And there is almost intrinsically a pressure to make sure this boy goes to Ole Miss. Now, that to me is the most exploitative form of a booster, right? Which is like, this is a quid pro quo. Yeah, I'm gonna give your mom a job at my factory. I'm gonna make sure that you know you have you know a private plane to get down to combines or what have you and get out to you know your your trainings out in Southern California. But all this shit is with the understanding that come signing day, you will go to my alma mater, right? These are how boosters work. And it is the literal commodification of black children. Let me tell you, as a Kentuckian, this is why, you know, John Calipari is a really unique white guy. And he says something that I'm like, very few coaches say this. And John Calipari is the head coach, University of Kentucky, just for context. Which, you know, if we do have a story program, it's UK basketball. If UK basketball were a Girl Scout cookie, they'd be Thin Mints. Now, he's also from Moon, which is right outside of Pittsburgh. Shout out to Moon. Yes, he absolutely is. And he, yeah, he's one of those great legacies of those Italian coaches in college basketball and in high school basketball. All this day, John Calipari said something that I thought was the most earnest thing I've ever heard a white coach say. John Calipari said, my wealth, my children's wealth, and my children's children's wealth is all built off of black parents trusting me with their children. That's how these programs are built. And so if you can get the black parents out of the way or get them manipulated financially, then you have eliminated the idea that black parents have to trust you. And just to give you an idea of how hypocritical an NCAA can be in terms of benefits, in terms of boosters, in terms of what's allowed or what's not allowed. Okay, so, all right, I'm at Canisius. I need to get home. 
it's uh, I think it's Thanksgiving break. Maybe it's not Thanksgiving break. Maybe it's the break that came before Thanksgiving, mid semester break or whatever. So one of my coaches gives me a ride to the Greyhound station. You know, Buffalo is not that far from Pittsburgh, four hours, eight hour Greyhound, whatever. For whatever reason, my ATM card was not working. I think maybe there was overdrawn funds or whatever reason. So I wasn't able to buy my, my bus ticket. So my coach who drove me to the bus station had to buy my ticket. And we're talking like a $29 or $30 ticket. Don't you know that he had to make a report mm-hmm. to the NCAA? Mm-hmm. And I was ineligible for like that 30 minutes or whatever of time between him buying it and him making a report or letting the compliance officer know and then the compliance officer contacting the NCAA and then them allowing it and okaying it. And he had to do all of that just to buy me a $30 ticket so I could get home. And again, I we had to reimburse him immediately too. Like as soon as I got home, I had to tell my dad, my dad had to wire money $30. And he spent like $15 wiring the $30. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of the Buffalo. The kids don't know this is pre-cash app. So you have shit like that, right? But then you have other circumstances where, you know, you'll see like an athlete that's driving a Benz or an Escalade. And again, we're going back 20, 25 years. And so when you have an entity, when you have just so much room for interpretation and misinterpretation and also so much incentive to subvert the rules, then you have shit like this happening. You have shit like the twoies. You have you have people like that who are, you know, who are able to take advantage yes. of this system and find loopholes because people with money are always going to be able to find loopholes. Whereas someone like me, my family, with no money, you know what I mean? And you hear about that shit all the time too, where people end up having to miss an entire motherfucking season because of like $15 or because of a meal. Ask any of the Fab Five, right? It's like they were, and part of the argument about the Fab Five was this NCAA investigation was coming down on a black man from Detroit who had given gifts to these players. Now, again, this is just hood shit, right? In the hood, it's like, oh, these boys are like, you know, they are five-star recruits, right? Make sure they got winter coats, right? Make sure they got shoes. This is just how we take care of our own. But that was actually criminalized by the NCAA and they had to vacate many of, if not all of their <laughs> of their championships, right? But booster culture is the essence of exploiting children because what we are talking about is talent who, these are prospective recruits when they're in you know eighth grade, as Michael Orr would tell you, and this is part of his frustration with the movie, is that he will tell you he was getting himself up in third grade, taking himself to school, managing himself. These white people did not do anything until it was clear, right? They came into his life when it was clear that he was going to be a huge football prospect. One of my sort of ethos that I live by is that you will find no more vile a human being than adults who gravitate towards children who are making money. It brings out the worst in any adult you've ever been around, right? And so the fact that these white people have gaslit America by literally exploiting and trafficking children and then making themselves motivational speakers over it, which again, visit Leanne Tui's Facebook page. It is absurd. It's like a a shopping exchange for foster children 
all the posts are just <laughs> pictures of mostly black. It's it really is. It's like it's like one of those like buy or sell Facebook groups, but it's just foster kids. Uh-huh. And there's all these white Christian evangelists telling her how amazing she is. And I'm like, this is the thing. This is where white women were like, piss me the fuck off. Because white women have this addiction to making an identity <laughs> off of shit where it's like other white women will gas them up and tell them like, you know, it's like I was just listening to Scamanda, which is this great podcast. And I realized with this white woman who was scamming cancer for, you know, a good 15, 20 years, she needed so badly to have an identity. And there's no more dangerous a creature on earth than a white woman desperately clawing for an identity. And this gave Leanne Toohey, cheerleader from Ole Miss, an identity. She was the white savior of these black foster kids, which she again, never adopted a single one of them. And so this story, the Toohey story is almost like a synopsis of just how the NCAA treats and treated black athletes in general, where everyone around the athlete is making money off of the athlete, except for the athlete itself. Absolutely. Except them and their family. Where you surround the athlete in wealth, you ensconce them in money, you ensconce them, which is all of these, you know, we're going to give you shoes, we're going to give you access to, to like food and facilities and, and all of these things, but you're not actually giving him money. You're not actually giving him actual money, but everyone else is getting money. These booster classes are made up of a merchant class of white people, right? So the Tuies aren't the only multimillionaires. And I mean, I think sort of the essence of being a booster is being a very wealthy uh, person who's an alma mater, was an alumni of that institution. These are business people who are making a calculation. They see themselves as, air quote, investing in these athletic prospects, and they expect to get their returns. And the returns for them, again, I know this being a Kentuckian, (laughs) being around the University of Kentucky all my life, the returns for them are manifold. So it's not necessarily a literal cash back into their account, but it's the resources that beget resources. So it is, oh, you know, I can call up Coach, you know, Calipari. I can call up, you know, Nick Saban, right? I can get tickets when it's not just a matter of can you afford those tickets. Is those tickets are very, very limited availability when talking about those season box tickets, right? I can get those tickets. Those tickets are going to put me in boxes with all the other business owners, all the governors, all the senators of the state of Alabama. These are for them. They are buying into the resources of that athletic program, right? It is the exact same thing as politics. When you are putting your money behind the candidate, you are expecting that candidate to pick up the phone when the next time you goddamn call, right? You are buying power. These are people for whom money is no longer the resource. Money has to be converted to other forms of capital. And the form of capital they want is institutional, racial, and political power. And they are getting that off of the backs of Black children. So who's to blame for this story, for this movie, for this book, which has so many different holes in it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Who's to blame for this being a $300 million movie? Like, Yeah, obviously the Tuohys, I think particularly Leanne Tuohy. But I think also there's a white appetite, right? So the white public just gulped up this movie. They couldn't get enough of it because the white appetite for white savior films is just insatiable, right? I have a colleague, uh, Matt Huey in sociology who actually studies white savior films and sort of what makes them white savior films. And I think the next step we can take in talking about white savior films is they are based on lies, right? Hidden figures lie about Katherine Johnson in order to make that movie. 
I might be one of the only black women who's very upset with Taraji because Taraji has made a cottage industry off of playing these, these white savior movies, right? Taraji, stop. <laughs> Katherine Johnson has said, now Katherine Johnson, when she was alive, she was a very lucid, I mean, genius, you know, woman, right? Katherine Johnson says, because so Hidden Figures, there's a choice made in that film in which it depicts black women as frantically running, trying to hold their urine to go use, you know, the bathroom across the campus, right? Like, you know, the, the bathrooms are segregated on the campus in which they worked. Katherine Johnson says that never happened. When I needed to go pee, I went to the bathroom that was right there, which is a white bathroom. She's like, I'm not an animal holding my, I work here, right? Well, the thing is, and you're missing a part, you're missing a part of that depiction of Hidden Figures. It wasn't just that they had to run across campus to go pee. It was that the character played by Kevin Costner made a big deal. It's like, you know what? This is wrong. I'm going to knock down the sign. Yes. I'm ending it right now. And that never happened. That never actually happened. And there was a black journalist who actually asked that director, like, why did you put a part into this film that never happened? And the director is just totally unapologetic. He's like, well, you know, it would just play better. You know, meaning making white savior films is about appeasing white audiences. And there is no racial truth in America in which white people, except for maybe John Brown and a couple others, in which white people actually put their neck on the lines for us, right? There's so few instances in which this happens, and yet white savior films put a racist imagination to the white public that white people have always done the right thing. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, you know, just getting back to the idea of, like, how did this happen? Yeah. You go back to the book, Michael Lewis's book, The Blind Side Evolution of a Game, which is written by Michael Lewis. And you would hope, you would think that someone who is a journalist, right, would be able to find a hold in yeah. parts of this story. And to scrutinize these people's self-reported story. And to scrutinize it, yes. The role of a journalist is to be a cynic, right? A cynic has to ask questions. You never take at face value what people are telling you. He didn't even triangulate his own data, which to me means this was never about journalism. This was about him selling a story. And the story was better if he didn't deal with any of the truth of it. The LA Times actually has an article written by Steve Allman, who basically, I guess the Times when the Blindside book first dropped, gave it a scathing review. It was like, yo, this is some bullshit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. And they're basically saying, we yo, we told, told you so. so. <laughs> this is, this was some bullshit. So please check out that article if you get a chance to. What do you think is going to happen with this case? What do you think is going to happen with this lawsuit? Um, I don't know sort of the, all the legalese, but I do think, you know, again, to my earlier point that all the Tuohy's claims that they never exploited this young man, that they, you know, were nothing but generous. All of that, to me, is blown out of the water at the fact that the conservatorship exists, right? They cannot keep treading on this myth. Why was an adult, an able-bodied, capable adult, ever in a conservatorship? And why did he not know that he was in conservatorship? So they don't have, you know, all their claims, all their PR spin doesn't hold any water. But I want to also say that Hollywood has a long trend of making these air quote feel good movies that are blatant lies. Eva Longoria just put out a movie claiming that this Mexican man at Frito-Lay invented hot Cheetos. That never happened. <laughs> it sounds like you're making that shit up. I feel like you're making that The up. LA Times wrote an entire <laughs> article about this man. I'm sorry for forgetting his name. And which the LA Times was like, actually we really investigated this and Frito-Lay has been clear. Like, in fact, let me tell you how Hot Cheetos got invented. 
Hot Cheetos got invented because black people in the Midwest like spicy snacks. And Frito-Lay said, we need to get at our price point, the 25 cent, the 50 cent bag, at which black people in the Midwest are going to buy our spicy snacks. So they were already competing with regional snack brands, right? Which we all know, again, the hood always has our favorite regional snack brands. Frito-Lay, which is an international snack brand, said we need to start competing with these regionals. It was the black consumers' demand for spicy snacks that created hot Cheetos at Frito-Lay. But even Gloria put together a whole... This film came out over two years after the LA Times article came out in which this entire story was debunked. But she loves this feel-good movie about this janitor of Frito-Lay who invents hot Cheetos. It never fucking happened. And again, he goes on this whole motivational speaking grift, just like Leanne's Tui, in which this is what it is for these people. Motivational speaking, or motivational speaking, as I like to call it, is about people who come up with a lie. And even if the lie is not egregious, you have to stick to a lie, right? You have to stick to some story of yourself, which is about bootstrapping, which totally defies everything we know sociologically about what's realistic for human beings in terms of our social outcomes. But you stick with this, you know, inspirational sort of narrative. That narrative usually has nothing to do with the truth. It has to do with what you're selling. And that's why I think that motivational speeches need to be brought before Senate and actually banned as, a, as an industry. I mean, what did, what did Slim Charles from The Wire say? He's like, you got to fight on that lie. Yeah, if it's a lie, we fight on that lie. But this is like a whole cottage industry. I mean, I don't, maybe you're, I don't know how close you are to it, but motivational speaking, right? These bureaus that do these motivational speeches. So it's like they want, you know, the Olympic athlete, you know, who lost a leg in the Iraq war. And they want, you know, the vet who does something and they want, you know, the pregnant teen who chose to keep her baby. Remember, my favorite motivational speaker was Bristol Palin. Bristol Palin was making $250,000 a speech to preach abstinence everywhere she goes. Okay. <laughs> it was telling everybody else to stop fucking. Well, you know, I, I belong to a speaker's borough also. You know what I mean? If you're a motivational speaker, tell me now. <laughs> I wouldn't call what I do motivation, though. I, I'm actually like an anti-motivational speaker. I'm a demotivational speaker. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, <laughs> absolutely. Sada Grundy. Thank you for your energy, for, for your text message, for, I don't know, for for making the connection from the blind side to Hot Cheetos. It, I, I would have never made that <laughs> myself. So I appreciate you for coming through and providing that for me. Thank you for letting me yell and rant about a movie I've been yelling and ranting about since it was released. Um, it is absolutely, my students are almost tired of hearing me rant about how racist this film is so i appreciate the platform <laughs> just want to thank the homie side grunny for coming through great conversation great topic again Sai is always a great guest great having her on again also stuck with damon young is available on every platform but particularly if you're on the Spotify app, there are interactive questions, polls, things of that nature. So go enjoy those, knock yourself out. Also, if you have any questions for me, any questions whatsoever about anything, hit me up at daredamon at crooked.com. 
All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schultz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall-Stressler. <laughs>